Streaming audio is made possible by Hungry Harvest, delivering farm-fresh produce and grocery staples to your door. Every delivery allows you to support local donations that fight hunger in the community. Learn more at HungryHarvest.net. This episode is sponsored by VG+, an omnivorous record label based in Baltimore, releasing sublime sounds by Picks and Lighters, Susan Alcorn and Philip Greenleaf, Terroplane, and San Francisco Moog, 1968-1972, a collection of previously unreleased music by Doug McKechnie that rewrites electronic music history. Find it on the web at vgplusrecords.com. My parents moved and we bought, uh, we as a family bought a small mom-and-pop grocery store and the folks who sold tobacco and alcohol to my parents' grocery store also handled the jukebox singles in the town that I grew up in. So when the jukebox singles would come down off the uh, off the jukeboxes, uh, my dad would purchase boxes of them for a penny apiece, and those were some of my toys as a child. So that my love for the Beatles and love for pop music started there. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. Genitor of American punk rock and hardcore, as well as one of its most effective practitioners, starting in Minneapolis in the late 70s as the lead singer and guitarist for the legendary Husker Du. He has had second, third, and arguably even fourth acts, however, as a solo artist and with other bands he's led, including power trio Sugar in the 1990s, followed by a series of almost annual solo albums released over the past 20 years. Although his first solo record, Workbook, featured a more plaintive and even Baroque approach, his more recent solo releases show clearly that the sonic aggression, anger, and passion that has always fueled his work is still in abundant supply. The first song Mould chose as being formative for him was She Said, She Said by the Beatles.
Beatles, She Said, She Said, uh, a song I think uh, many, many pop musicians have drawn on for influence. Um, you know, I was born in 1960 and uh, first became aware of what popular music was, I guess, through, you know, AM radio, like a lot of, a lot of kids, you know, in the, in the mid 60s. And you know, the, the Monkees had a TV show, and the Beatles were world famous, and when I was a young child, I was, a la I, was I, I got to go to the uh, department store twice a year with either my mother or my grandmother, and I could pick out an album and buy one album. And, uh, you know, I remember buying Revolver, and then I think the next one might have been uh, might have been the second Monkees album. Maybe it was at headquarters. And uh, but anyways, that's sort of where the Beatles came into my life. Was very very early as a child, you know. And, I, and shortly after that, um, my parents moved, and we bought. Uh, we as a family bought a small mom and pop grocery store. And the folks who sold tobacco and alcohol to my parents grocery store also handled the jukebox singles in the town that I grew up in so when the jukebox singles would come down off the uh, off the jukeboxes uh, my dad would purchase boxes of them for a penny a piece and those were some of my toys as a child so that my love for the Beatles and love for pop music started there and and I guess what she said she said just you know that sort of simplistic uh, droning riff. I guess this was, you know, that, that period of the Beatles where, where they were starting to move, move away from being a, a teen idol pop band and moving more into serious popular music. And, you know, that would have been where I joined in, I guess, Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Peppers. And, you know, that song, you know, is, is one of my, one of my favorites from that period, uh, that and I guess T Tomorrow Never Knows would be another sort of adjunct song. But, but yeah, that's that's where I made the connection with that song. Oh, could you talk a little bit, uh, if possible, about what it is that that particular um, song means, or maybe it's that droning sound that attracted you? Yeah, it's mostly the mostly. Uh, I think my attraction to it is more more on the musical side as opposed to the lyrical side uh again as a small child you know i know what it's like to be dead is sort of like mm, i don't really think about that too much as a seven-year-old <laughs> but the uh just the just sort of the arrangement of the way you know the way that the the way i think it's more towards the back of the song where just sort of the insistent you know fundamental note I, th I don't know I think the song might be in B but whatever the one chord is of the song they're just sort of repeating that note all the way through I think it might be on an organ it sounds like it's sort of a it might be like a Hammond organ or a Farfisa organ with a note held down all the way through the back half of the song and just how they sort of weave melodies and, and chord changes around that though you know it's I guess that it must have left an impression on me because I used that device fairly regularly in my own composition i was gonna say when when i saw that you had picked that song it was like well 
that kind of makes sense, right? It connects with a lot of the sound of, you know, the various, you know, some of your music and a lot of the projects you've done sort of go back to that well uh, uh, again and again, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's, yeah. And, and it's funny, I talk with a lot of other musicians who sort of call upon Tomorrow Never Knows in the same way, you know, sort of just that, that, that you know, sort of one chord droning away while you, you make all the maneuvers around it. It's, uh, it's a very hypnotic kind of device that, that I guess the Beatles found in Eastern music and, uh, you know, so I sort of appropriated it. The second song Mold chose as essential to his formation as an artist was Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. Oddly enough, with the Beatles, I think was it might have been Paul McCartney who used the name Paul Ramone when he used to check into hotels when the Beatles were touring in the early '60s. Uh, the Ramones are clearly a touchstone for me. They were the band that got me to reconsider what music should be. At that, when I heard the Ramones' first album. Instantly, I, you know, just fell in love with the sound. And I guess to help set up how I even knew the Ramones were a band, in the mid-70s, again, in this small town in upstate New York that I grew up in, one of the things I enjoyed doing was uh, buying uh, magazines about rock music. And my favorite magazine each month was called Rock Scene. I believe it was... Richard and Lisa Robinson, who were a you know journalistic couple in New York City who documented not only the heavy metal bands of the time like Aerosmith and Kiss and music, you know, Tin Lizzy, stuff like that, but they also wrote quite a bit and, and followed, uh, you know, the early punk scene in, in lower Manhattan, which, you know, I guess around CBGB's and Max's Kansas City and those venues. So... I was listening to hard rock and heavy metal and stuff like that in high school, and I would also see these, you know, photojournalistic, photojournalistic articles about this band, the Ramones, who, you know, one month they'd be going to a music store on 48th Street to buy a PA for their shows, or they would be, you know, doing these things that were completely contrary to what the heavy metal bands were doing in the same magazine, which was flying on private planes and hanging out with groupies and being fabulous and famous. So there was this, in, in my eyes as a teenager, there was this schism between this these heavy metal acts who were seemed very opulent and it all seemed rather unattainable. And then there were these four guys in leather jackets 
I would see pictures of them buying a PA or loading it into the back of a beat-up van, and I thought, wow, that looks like something I could actually do. So when I purchased the first Ramones album and put the needle down on the groove, it came clear really quick that this was more in line with what I might be able to do with music as a 15, 16-year-old kid who was teaching himself how to play guitar listening to other music and emulating it and learning that way. Uh, so it's got a, you know, it's got a, I have a lot of history with that song. <laughs> well, it, I'm struck by the fact that it, you seem to have uh, sort of attached to them, you know, uh, visually before you even heard any of the music. Uh, yeah, I guess back in the old days before the internet, that was we would buy magazines and we would see pictures of people and maybe not know what their music sounded like, but there was a maybe a mystique or a mystery to all of it, you know, where, you know, I guess I appreciate having the entire knowledge of, you know, the world at my fingertips in my pocket at all times. But before we had such things, we used our imaginations to fill in the the distance between what someone looked like and what people said their work sounded like and when you actually got to hear their work. So, you know, I still, I guess I miss that kind of mystique or mystery in, in pop music these days. I, I guess I miss it. I miss it a little bit in life in general. But, uh, but yeah, it was a pretty strong connection that I made. And again, being a, a young musician learning teaching myself how to play guitar you know the Ramones album was a perfect way to learn how to learn that style of music because uh you know the guitar was panned hard to one side and the bass guitar was panned hard to the other side so it made it very easy to listen and learn and you know if I wanted to play along with the band I could just listen to the side with bass guitar and see if I could sound like the sound like Johnny Ramone so it, it was it was uh, it was instructional as well as inspirational uh, I'm curious what were you trying to learn before you heard the Ramones you were trying to emulate people who were you trying to emulate just learning how they how they constructed how they constructed songs you know how many times around on a verse how many times on a chorus how many bridges are these all bar chords are these you know, are they using cowboy chords? There's no solos, so it sounds like it's all sort of rhythm guitar, which is easier to learn than lead guitar, at least for me. Uh, so those are the things I, I took away from Blitzkrieg Bop off the off the first Ramones album. Um, so how long was it between sort of this revelation and you being in your first bands? A couple of years. That would have been that would have been mid mid late seventy six up to uh, mid late seventy eight when you know when I you know met Grant Hart and Greg Norton and we started uh, working in earnest towards what would become known as Husker Du. That would have been early nineteen seventy nine. So yeah, two years of uh, two years of learning how to write songs by myself and you know sometimes with a friend of mine in high school and you know. Punk rock songs are very easy to write, <laughs> so I had a lot of songs before uh, before Husker Du started up. You mentioned uh, uh, sort of uh, working with a friend. I was curious. Uh, you know, uh, several guests on the show have talked about um, those sort of moments when you're young and you find something that you know really speaks to you. You know, and 
this case, usually music. Um, but it's also a way of sort of identifying your people, right? It's like no one else is into this thing, but maybe that guy over there or that woman over there, they're into it. And so you sort of recognize them as your people. Did, did this help you find a tribe or was this something that, that was more um, just to yourself? Um, well, I mean, back, you know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, when I actually did start writing, you know, songs as a nine-year-old kid and trying to get other kids to get with me to form a band with not much success. I only had one, one quick band at a talent show in fifth grade. Uh, original songs, but, you know, nothing of, nothing of lasting value. Uh, I think with in this case with the Ramones and then going to McAllister College in St. Paul and meeting meeting Grant and then and then Greg and putting it together, yeah, that's more a more finding finding friendship, finding kinship, and finding you know you know sort of that that bond where you hear other people listening to the music that you like, and all of a sudden you're oh hey yeah we can we like the same kind of music, we like to smoke pot, we like to hang out, we should start a band. Yeah, it's definitely what music is about. It's a, it's a way to, you know, it's a device that can change the world, and it's also a way that we can all, you know, come together and, and create community. So it's, uh, yeah, it was a, uh, I think it, I think in the case of uh, the beginning of Who's Crew, it was definitely finding other like-minded people while I was, uh, while I was still endeavoring to educate myself. Oh! The final song Mold chose as being crucial to him was Only Shallow by My Bloody Valentine. So uh, My Bloody Valentine uh, was a band that I was late to the party on. I had heard their name, and uh, it wasn't until Loveless came out in late 1991 that I was aware of who they were and what their music sounded like. I remember hearing the uh, album for the first time. It was uh, in late 91. I was in the U.K., and I was touring, doing solo shows with, uh, with a support performer named, at the time named Heather Frith, and who went on to become known as Heather, Heather Nova. And we had done a show, some shows together throughout the UK. And her manager was driving us around from town to town. 
And I think it was after the last show, and it might have been in Manchester in the UK, we were driving back to London, and uh, he he had just gotten uh, the album Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, and we listened to it in the car as we were driving back from Manchester to London, and it was... It was a really great experience. I mean, it was really profound music. Uh, I had heard that they had a certain sound, but I had never really dug into their work. Uh, people had mentioned them to me in the in the context of you know them sounding a little bit like some of the things that I had done in the '80s. You know, sort of the dense wall of guitars and you know big layers of sound and droning again, as with the Beatles. Um, you know, people mentioned Sonic Youth when they mentioned My Bloody Valentine. Uh, and they, we were also, we also ended up being label mates at Creation Records during that same period. But uh, anyways, the first song on the record is Only Shallow, and much like Blitzkrieg Bop on the first Ramones album, it was, you know, my first clear, clear experience with hearing this band that I had heard about. And uh, it just... The whole album really struck me as just this, you know, this incredible suite of songs and sounds and ideas, and you know, it's it's such a such a you know, it's like heavy layers of gauze coming from all directions. It's you know, the voices are sort of wrapped in a bit of mystery. Um, you know, sometimes I would hear an intro to a song and be, is that part of the last song? Is that part of this song? What's all this? Is this dissonance intentional? Is all this obscuring of features? Is this intentional? No, I think it just it, 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 it had a real sense of wonder for me. I was like, how much of this is, how much of this is meant to be this way? How much of it is, you know, the the, the car stereo? How much of it is, the the sound of the the motorway underneath the car canceling out certain parts of the music? Uh, it just it was. It was, you know, phenomena. I guess acoustic phenomena might be a way to, that I to describe what I what was and wasn't hearing. And it's funny as I, yeah, I'll stop there and let you ask some questions. That seems like a good place to clip that. Well, I, I'm wondering if maybe that had um, a musical impact in terms of because uh, I don't know if this was maybe slightly before uh, Sugar, if that. You know, the next time you went back in the studio, did you approach it a different way because of of, of that record? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was right before uh, the sugar rehearsals and recording sessions for Copper Bloom Beaster were were mapped out. And uh, you know, fun fact is, as we were making Copper Bloom Beaster at a place called the Outpost in Stoughton, Massachusetts, it would have been February, maybe March of. 1992, uh, My Bloody Valentine came and toured, and they played uh, at the Orpheum in Boston. I think it was Dinosaur. I think it was Dinosaur Junior. Then My Bloody Valentine. So two, you know, two simpatico bands at a venue 30 minutes away from where we were making Copper Blue and Beaster. And we went to the show, and it was one of the loudest shows that I, that I've ever been to. You know, notwithstanding shows where I've been on stage generating that much volume, and uh, it was just a really, really great show. They at that time had the film loops with them, so it was sort of a yeah, you know, similar to what I imagine a Velvet Underground show might have been like. 
during the exploding plastic inevitable era. Uh, you know, just lots of colors and lots of dense sound live, especially you know, that, that song You Made Me Realize, which they tend to play towards the end of every show. It's their, their 10 minutes wall of noise part of the show that leaves most of us debilitated in the audience because it's so incredibly loud. Um, so yeah, it had, uh, you know, I, I, I was, I, I, I really enjoyed what they were doing on record. And, and then when I saw them live, we were already in the making of the record. And, and I just thought, wow, there, there's, you know, there's, they pile on a lot of sounds. So maybe, maybe I could go back to these songs as I'm working on with the band in the studio and maybe I could pile on some more sound. And, uh, yeah, definitely had, uh, it definitely left an impression on me, and it, it certainly had, you know, a part to play in the density of some of the tracks on Copper Blue and Beaster, you know, especially, I think especially with Beaster, but but across both records, to be sure. And then, and then it was nice, you know, in the, you know, the following year to meet Kevin Shields and to actually sit with Kevin for a couple hours and talk about music and talk about methodology and what he's trying to do and what I was trying to do. And that's when he shared a, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the ideas that go into how he constructs albums. And I didn't know that he was drawing on a couple things that I had said, a couple sonic techniques that I had mentioned specifically in interviews back in 1986. He, called those back to me during the dinner and I was like oh wow you read that so oh that's how you used that technique oh I get it now okay so that's I, now it all makes sense so I guess I was drawn to I was drawn to I was drawn to a very original piece of work you know in Loveless that apparently the methodology was something that I had you know, one of the pieces of methodology was something I had mentioned years prior, and I was like, "Ah, okay, now I get it. This this all makes perfect sense." <laughs> At the risk of getting real nerdy, could you talk a little bit about what the specific feedback loop was there? You know, the thing. That uh, that's the um, yeah. The, he, yeah, at the risk of at the risk of at the risk of getting too inside baseball or nerdy about it, uh, there's a the Yamaha made it a uh, inexpensive piece of gear called the SPX90. It was a single rack space digital reverb that a lot of people used in the late '80s. It was a, it was a very flexible reverb unit and very inexpensive, and it it lent itself well to live presentation. It was. Uh, and and they used to have there was uh, some reverse reverbs and some nonlinear reverbs that were built into it. They were sort of modeled after I guess a uh, AMS digital reverbs or uh, another company from France at the time called Publison, who who had some nonlinear reverbs. Uh, I guess where people might be familiar with hearing them in popular music would be you know like with Phil Collins and Peter Gabriel, Power Station, a lot of those large gated reverbs that you would hear on snare drums that made them sound like they were coming at you both backwards and forwards. So uh, Kevin, you know, I, I was using those reverbs of the end stage Who's Could Do records and Kevin read about this and I think that was that might have been a technique that he incorporated into some of the My Bloody Valentine records. You brought up something interesting, which is volume. 
And, you know, I mean, My mm. Bloody Valentine is a famously loud band. Dinosaur Jr., famously loud band. Um, and, you know, I don't, I have heard people refer to uh, at least Husker Du as a famously loud band. And, you know, I can attest to a degree. Um, but, you know, <laughs> when, when you go see another band, does it ever seem to you, wow, that's too loud? Uh, there have been shows that I thought were too loud in a specific way. Um, you know, for, for me as a fan, if I go to a show and, you know, the one that I remember was, uh, I think it was Motorhead who I saw maybe at First Avenue in Minneapolis and the, the low end was so overwhelming that I was not able to hear anything clearly in the in the mid-range or top end. It was just, you know, loud is one thing, but loud out of balance is problematic, I think, for any kind of music. And the, the low end was just so overwhelming that I could not make sense of anything that was being said or anything the guitar player or the drummer were doing. It was just this... <sighs> And it sort of took over the, you know, sort of took over the entire experience. I was like, well, maybe this show is not for me right now. Uh, conversely, I've been to, I've been to concerts where the, you know, the top end or the, you know, the high mids are so shrill and so piercing that it's, it's a detriment to the, to the presentation. And, you know, the, again, that will be somewhere where I might just go, ah, this is so loud. This is so shrill and loud at the same time that it's not particularly enjoyable. Um, having said that, I've seen shows that are incredibly loud, but very full and balanced. And, you know, that's that's a pleasurable experience. Um, you know, I think another example of that would be you know, going to see an, you know, going to a, a DJ event or a, a venue that is set up for, you know, for for club music, and you know, I think of a place like Cielo in in New York City. I don't know if Cielo is still there, but that was a room when I would go. It would be incredibly loud, and the low end was was just right. Or uh, a venue like Berghain in Berlin that I used to go every week and. It was, you know, 126, 128 decibels in the main room, but the PA was so powerful that it was, it never sounded distorted. It was always loud and clear and it was, you know, sort of, you know, a real transcendent experience. You know, you've, I felt like I was floating off the ground because the, the low end could literally felt like it was levitating everything in the room. But again, not in an unpleasant or unbalanced way. So, you know, I think with rock shows, when they're really, really loud, it's really great. Uh, Husker Du was loud. Sugar was much louder. I think these days I'm probably somewhere in the middle between how loud Husker Du was and how loud Sugar was. Um, as long as it's loud and clear, I think it's I think it's fine. But uh, again, if something is out of whack, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's it's sort of either like being, uh, you know, I guess it would be like being in a, in an MRI for too long, I suppose. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, do you do you wear earplugs when you go see shows? Uh, no, I don't. I have, I have, not worn earplugs much at shows. I've tried earplugs on stage. I've tried in-ear monitors, and. Uh, I don't know. It takes away all the excitement for me, I guess. I, and, 
you know, because of that, I'm certainly paying the price in later life. But uh, no, I, I like I like to hear the full spectrum as it is. And uh, again, if a show is if I feel like it's a threat to my hearing, I will I'd, I'd rather leave than uh, than than put in earplugs. They just they really don't work for me. But having said that, I would suggest anybody that comes to any of my shows, whether they're solo, electric, or with my rhythm section in a, in a live rock setting, I would definitely recommend that you bring earplugs. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 